Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. Early on in his political career, before he ever became president, Lincoln said, referring to America, that a house divided against itself cannot stand. Little did Lincoln know at the time that he would one day stand at the fulcrum of that division and that he might become crushed by the weight of it, not only metaphorically, but ultimately in Ford's theater. With Americans so angry today, with tempers and temperatures so high, we admire the great job that the Secret Service does of protecting presidents of both parties. And so it is that for Lincoln, the end could have come even before he took office. In a little-known footnote to history, Lincoln had to sneak his way into Washington to prevent an assassination attempt by pro-slavery extremists. That's the backbone of Brad Meltzer's new look at history in The Lincoln Conspiracy. Brad Meltzer is the best-selling author of The Escape Artist and The First Conspiracy, The Secret Plot to Kill George Washington. His work has appeared on television on the History Channel, PBS, National Geographic, and many other networks. It is my pleasure to welcome Brad Meltzer back to this program to talk about his latest work, The Lincoln Conspiracy, The Secret Plot to Kill America's 16th President and Why It Failed. Brad, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, It's so good to be here. Well, it's great to have you here. This is a kind of footnote of history, but yet a significant one. Why has this been not something that everyone knows about? And how did you come across it originally? Yeah, you know, this story uh, jumped out at me. And and let's just talk about what it is, and then I can tell you where it came from. But I found that when I was researching Lincoln's real assassination, because we all know that story. We all know Abraham Lincoln being killed at Ford's Theater. But what people don't know is there was a secret plot to kill him at the start of his presidency. The Ford Theater one's the end. This is the beginning. Because to get sworn in as America's 16th president, Abraham Lincoln had to travel from where he was living in his home in Springfield, Illinois, and go to Washington, D.C. And the only way to get there is you have to take a train that went through Baltimore. Now, Maryland at the time, though, was a slave state. So the plot to kill him was very simple. A secret society planned to murder Lincoln as he came through Baltimore, ending his presidency before it ever began. And I was just obsessed with that idea. I was like, what, what do you mean there was another plot to kill Abraham Lincoln? How at the start of his presidency? And I found it and just realized, you know what, not only is it an interesting story, but it tells us exactly kind of where Abraham Lincoln is and where our country oddly is right now. As we are, you know, it was a time when when I saw the story when we, you know, America was divided and and whatever side you were on, you hated the other side. Does that sound familiar to you? Um, Because it's exactly where we are now. Was Lincoln aware and and were the people around him aware of of how much hostility there was, of the degree of of hatred that was out there? Um, You know, the the level of hatred um, was staggering. You know, we all tell the story of Abraham Lincoln where Abraham Lincoln is, you know, the most beloved president and he's won the, the Civil War and all these amazing things and, he, you know, the Emancipation Proclamation, all this wonderful, we all know those stories. At the start of his presidency, Abraham Lincoln was hated more than anyone and throughout it too. And he was so hated that they gave, that when he was running for the presidency, that there were 10 different Southern states that refused to even put his name on the ballot, even though Abraham Lincoln was the rightful nominee. Ten different states. There are ten states that didn't even cast a single vote for Abraham Lincoln because they said, nope, we don't don't like him. 
And he was so hated that three days after he was elected, that's how long they gave him, three days after the election, South Carolina passed a resolution saying they intended to secede from the Union over slavery and Abraham Lincoln's, you know, the, they, they saw it as a front to slavery. And he was so hated that the murder and death threats immediately started coming. He was so hated that, as I told you, they plotted to murder him. A secret society planned to murder him as he came through Baltimore. And, and I think what strikes me most of all is in the midst of all this hatred, you know what Abraham Lincoln does? You know, Abraham Lincoln reacts is he comes in and this is, you know, within the same month as they try and kill him. It's weeks after he gets to Washington, D.C. He says in his first inaugural address that we should not be enemies. We should be friends. He says that we should defer to the better angels of our nature. And my God, do we need that lesson today? Right. We all need that lesson today because the way we talk, you know, I've done to talk about this book I've been on to see my friends at Fox News. I've seen my friends at CNN. All right. I've been on NPR and Fox News in the same week. You know what? Everyone whispers to me in the green rooms or in my ear or right before we go on for the interview. Everyone, the one thing America agrees on, and we don't, you know, there are things, believe it or not, that we do agree on these days. But the one thing everyone agrees on is that the way we talk to each other as a culture right now is disgusting. The way we talk about the other side is disgusting. The way we talk about anyone who disagrees with us is disgusting. We're doing it wrong. We're doing it wrong. We need to defer to the better angels of our nature. And Abraham Lincoln knew that. You don't find that's what leadership is, right? Leadership isn't about being in charge. It's about taking care of those in your charge. And yet, with all of it and all the similarities to today, there is reason for hope because there was that hostility, and arguably it was even worse than today in some respects. And somehow we got through. We got through to the other side. And, and certainly Lincoln was part of that, but we did make it. We did make it. And, but you know why we make it is because of the right leadership. That's really why we get there. And that leadership has to come from somewhere. It doesn't just happen magically. I mean, Abraham Lincoln can come in at the beginning of the Civil War and say, screw the other side, you know, they're the enemy, we're going to kill them all. And he starts by saying, we need to be together. He could easily cut them off and say, you lead your half, we'll take our half, and let's be done with it. Um, and Abraham Lincoln, to be clear, it's not like he's this, in, you know, and I think this is probably one of the most important parts of the book and the secret plot to kill him, is that we, you know, we do this thing with our heroes in America today, where we take our heroes and we build these great monuments to them, and then we go worship. But when we do that, we do our heroes a huge disservice because what we do is we build these monuments and we act like they're not people anymore. They're not human beings. They're, they're kind of like lowercase g gods. But you know what Abraham Lincoln was doing on the day he found out he was going to be the nominee for the presidency? He was playing handball in an alleyway. He's just a normal guy. Before he comes to Washington, D.C., one of the last things he does before leaving Illinois is he goes to visit his father's grave, he goes to his hometown and he goes to see his stepmother who he still adores and still alive. And they hug each other and she's crying and he's, you know, obviously emotionally moved by that moment. And she says to him that later that I'm worried that they're going to assassinate and I'm worried I'm never going to see him again. She's absolutely right. And when you see those moments, it's not Abraham Lincoln, the finished product. This is Abraham Lincoln 1.0. 
He's nervous about the presidency. He's worried he's going to make mistakes. He's not confident about it. On the way on the train ride to Washington, D.C., they actually lose the inaugural address. He's so disorganized. They can't even find it. And to me, we have to all remember that anyone you look up to, whether it's Abraham Lincoln or George Washington, Rosa Parks or anyone else, they all have moments where they're scared and they're terrified and they don't know if they can go forward. And we forget that. And to go forward as a country, I tell you that story simply to answer your question, is Abraham Lincoln doesn't come in and know the right answers. He doesn't know exactly how to do it. There are some people who say that his inaugural address, the first one he gives, is actually too timid on the South. He needs to be stronger. He doesn't come in and say, I'm going to stop slavery. He actually, in the beginning, says that, you know what, if you have slavery in your state, you can keep it. We're just going to make sure you can't have any new states that come into the union. They will not have slavery. It's basically a, a line of appeasement where he's just going to give people what they want. It's not until amazing people like Frederick Douglass kind of get into his head and, and, and help him evolve on his own thinking. But what holds together for the country, and that to me helps us where we are today, is the one thing that Abraham Lincoln knows, the one thing he never gives up on, is that belief that we're all better together that there is a country that we stand better when we stand together and we stand against racism. That is what he believes. He may not believe, he doesn't know how slavery should work. He doesn't know exactly how it goes, but he absolutely knows it's morally wrong. He doesn't know how to deal with it. He's like, maybe we shouldn't have a fight with the South. Maybe they should keep their slaves. I know it's wrong, but maybe I can't take this away from that's a livelihood. But he knows it's morally wrong and he stands against it. And he stands for the union that will be stronger if we all stand together. And, and that's something to me, that we need to remember today, because look where we are, man. We're right in the midst of both of those issues. Which really brings it around to the speculation that you engage in a little bit at the end of, of the Lincoln conspiracy about what would have happened if the plot had succeeded before Lincoln actually became president. Yeah, let's talk about that. Let, let's talk about the plot itself. I mean, you know, uh, I'll, I'll say it like this. There's a speeding train in the middle of the night, and on this train there's a bunch of uh, passengers. There's three that we're really focused on. Um, there's a businessman, there's a woman, and there's her invalid brother. And none of them are who they say they are. The businessman is actually famous detective Alan Pinkerton of the Pinkerton Detective Agency. The woman is actually Kate Warren, America's first female private eye. And her so-called invalid brother is not her brother, and he's certainly not an invalid. That's actually Abraham Lincoln. They put him in a disguise. They give him a fake name, and they put him in disguise. You'll see how. And they whisk him off in the middle of the night to save his life from the secret society that's trying to murder him. I just ruined chapter one of the Lincoln Conspiracy, <laughs> by the way. But, but I think that's okay. You got chapter one. So, but that's chapter one. That's how it opens, right? Um, and, and what you can't help but ask when you see this moment and you see this secret society try to kill him, throughout the Lincoln Conspiracy, when you read the book, you can't help but say what would happen if the plot succeeded. What happens if on that train that night, the Knights of the Golden Circle, this secret society plotting to kill Abraham Lincoln, actually succeed? And the question that we ask is, because you, you have to ask it, like would someone come in and do just as well as Lincoln, someone who might be even better to deal with things at the time? Maybe, but maybe not. And the one thing I know for sure and you'll see this at the end of, of the book, at the end of the Lincoln Conspiracy, is that the one thing we know for sure is that story of Abraham Lincoln, that boy who 
comes from nothing and can barely read and barely goes to school at all, but educates himself and teaches himself to read and ascends to the highest office in the land, that isn't just the story of our 16th president. That's the story of America itself. You know, we're a country that's founded on legends and myths, and the legends and myths we love most are our own. And, I, you know, God knows what the outcome of the Civil War is if Abraham Lincoln dies, but I do believe we lose one of the great icons that informs the American ideology itself. The other thing it reminds us of, and this also brings it back to the present day, is that nothing about our history necessarily was preordained, that decisions matter, that leadership and, and people in those positions matter, and, and the things they do and the things they say really shape the outcome. Listen, um, you know, one of the reasons why we wrote this book, Josh mentioned, I, you know, he was our executive producer on our History Channel TV show, and he's an award-winning documentarian, an incredible researcher. And one of my favorite scenes in the whole book um, is this moment where Abraham Lincoln is told for the first time that there's a plot to kill him. And they approach him and he's in the hotel room in the middle of the night and they say, sir, there's a plot to kill you. We think they're going to, you know, we got to get you out of here. And they say to him, you know, Lincoln says, I have a big event in Philadelphia tomorrow. And they said, we're going to, we're going to skip that event in Philadelphia. We're going to get you to Washington DC a day earlier. We're going to save your life. And Abraham Lincoln says, I'm not missing the event in Philadelphia. And they're like, what are you talking about? He says, I'm not missing the event in Philadelphia. And you want to know why? Um, Because here's what's happening in Philadelphia the next day. They are honoring the birth of Abraham Lincoln's heroes, one of them, a man named George Washington. And no way is Abraham Lincoln missing the event to honor George Washington. And what's so great is Josh actually was able to find, Josh Mensch was able to find the speech that Abraham Lincoln gives that day. And he does go to Philadelphia. He risks his life to go there and finds the speech that Abraham Lincoln gives. And he says in that speech that, all of us, that equality is something that everyone must have, that if the country can't stand for that, then he basically pauses a long moment, and he says, you might as well assassinate me on the spot right now. And what we know when you read the book is that Abraham Lincoln knew there was a plot to kill him when he says those words, assassinate me on the spot. He knows those words, but he feels like this country must stand for something bigger. It must stand together. It must stand for what's morally right. That that idea that you can just serve as part of the nation and not the other, that everyone doesn't have what he calls an equal chance. We all must have an equal chance or else we don't have America. That matters. That's what we're fighting for, right? We're fighting about that moral, horrible you know, thing that everyone's arguing over, which is slavery, right? Half the country thinks that you can read, you know, people say today, oh, slave, the Civil War is not about slavery. You are wrong. You are wrong. Read the documents. The documents from South Carolina literally say we are seceding because the other side doesn't think that that black people are equal to white people and they are a lower creed. They are a lower race. That's what it says. And that's what we're fighting about. That's what the Civil War is about. And Abraham Lincoln will not stand for that. He may stand for the economic impact of it. He may stand for, hey, I don't know how to really end slavery. I don't know whether I should end it in your territory but he knows it's morally wrong. And who you elect matters. Elections matter. And leadership matters. And when you don't have it, that's when you have where America is today, where we don't stand together. And where, you know, again, Ronald Reagan said it best, right? 
are you better now than you were four years ago? I mean, I don't know a single, I mean, look around. It's a crazy time right now. One of the things that this brings up is a debate that, that seems to go on periodically in the body politic about whether change comes from the bottom up or the top down, whether grassroots efforts are enough without the kind of leadership that you talk about vis-a-vis Lincoln. Talk about your thoughts on that. Well, that's a really good question. No leader is no one's asked me that one yet, and I appreciate the thoughtfulness of that. And I, I'd say it like this. It's kind of like cable television, right? We all want to blame the media because of all the crap that's on television. Um, and that's right. There is a lot of garbage every day out there, but you can't just serve garbage and expect everyone to eat it. The only reason it gets eaten is because there's an appetite for it. And as long as there's an appetite for it, people are going to keep serving it. So to me, it's a chicken or the egg game. I firmly believe you cannot just from on high, um, you know, they don't, things don't just come from nowhere. They have to come, as you just said, from that, as I just said, from that appetite, right? There has to be an appetite for that change. There has to be an appetite for that kind of leadership that we elect. And then things swing the other way. Someone, you know, recently said very wisely that America is like a thermostat. And however you turn the thermostat, it eventually will level off. It gets too cold and, and the heat will go on. And it gets too hot and the air will come on. And the thermostat will regulate to a temperature. They say that that's why... You know, why did Black Lives Matter make such a jump in public opinion in the last month alone, right? Is it the incident of one person or is it that the thermostat and the racism that's been kind of pushed so, you know, especially in this last presidency, overtly, whether it's against Muslims, whether it's against gays, whether it's against, you know, pick your minority, whether it's the rise in anti-Semitism, that the thermostat goes off and people go, you know what, that's not fair anymore. But at the same time, if you don't have that leadership in place, you can't make that change. You can only get so far. Dr. King knew that. It's why he worked with LBJ, right? Is eventually you need the people to work with those in power. It has to go hand in hand. It always goes hand in hand. It goes to that argument that there has to be that moment when the leadership and the moment and the attitudes of the public come together in in a very special kind of way. I mean, I think that's what we're going through now with respect to, as you say, Black Lives Matter, and that was was Lincoln's moment. And no, that's exactly right. I mean, you know, um, we have a friend whose father was one of Dr. King's top lieutenants. And one of the stories she told me that I'll never forget is a story about the Children's March. And in the Children's March, you know, when Dr. King and the Civil Rights Movement was marching, there were people inside of his own inner circle who were like, listen, you can't put kids in danger. You got to be careful. You know, kids, they could get, you know, they're going to put, you know, water hoses or dogs or, you know, kids, you know, you don't want to do that. Not that Dr. King ever wanted to put kids in danger, but there's another side of Dr. King's inner circle that says, no, we should do exactly what we should do and be exactly who we are. And if they do something wrong, at least America will see it. And, you know, she was explaining to me her father's view on this. He had a kind of more, uh, a more, you know, aggressive view on this situation. And sure enough, when America on television saw those African-American kids being attacked in that children's march, the culture went enough, enough. That's not fair. That's not right. That's what happens in the Civil War. I mean, Abraham Lincoln tells the story when he's a little boy that he sees a group of slaves who are being, they're chained together. And he doesn't do anything that day. He's just a little kid. He just sees them on a boat and they're all chained together. 
And he says later he could never shake the sight of that. He never did anything that day. He was too young, but he never could shake the sight of how unfair that was. And there's a moment in you where you just go enough. And I think it's what happened to Lincoln. And you, you'll see you'll see when you read the Lincoln conspiracy, it's incredible to watch him react to what's going on around him, to watch him react to the venomous hatred that's coming because he, you know, he thinks that slavery is, is morally wrong. Um, and, and I think you're seeing it right now, as you said, you're seeing the culture suddenly saying enough enough it's not fair something's wrong how was lincoln able to square the the moral attitude that he brought to this with a sense of of real politic with a sense even of incrementalism as it might be called today and to be able to do both of those things at the same time you know and that's the thing is everyone thinks you know if i woke you up in the average american in the middle of the night i said tell me about abraham lincoln three o'clock in the morning you know what you'd say you blurt out free the slaves Big black hat, Emancipation Proclamation, Civil War. You blur, you know, five dollar bill. You you blurred all the cliches. That's what we teach, right? Free the slaves. Um, but as you said, Abraham Lincoln didn't come in and say, "I'm freeing the slaves." He incrementally, he knew it was morally wrong, but he incrementally said, little by little, he got there. And even for himself, he wasn't he wasn't fully completely there. And I think the reason that Abraham Lincoln did so well as a president is he didn't just reflect his own views. He reflected what the people wanted and he evolved with it. We are always evolving, every one of us. Every one of us, you know, look at your lives 20 years ago, you just see the world differently. And that happens in years and months and minutes and seconds. We are all of us amazing and we're all cowards and we're all brave and we're all scared. Some of us within the same couple hours, some of us in the same few minutes, right? But, but that's not what makes us flawed. That's what makes us human. That's a good thing. And I think if you look at the presidents we think are the best presidents, George Washington and Abraham Lincoln, what, what they have in common, what the best presidents have in common is their ability, they, they're faced with a crisis, and it's the way they react to that crisis. I've never in the past few weeks seen a culture turn on a president like I've seen, you know, even those who love Donald Trump are like, you can't go and gas your own people. You know, and you watch the Republican side. I mean, it's fascinating for me on the history side just to watch it. There's a point where the culture says, I've had enough. And the president can leave wherever they want, whatever moment in history, wherever they want. But there's a point where people won't follow. There's a point where people say, you know what, that, that doesn't seem right. And the one thing that's at the core of America is this firm belief um, we are very stubborn um, we believe that no one should tell us what to do, which I love about America. We also have a beautiful, wonderful sense of right and wrong. And the one thing, we may all disagree on what's right and what's wrong, but the one thing we tend to agree on, and again, I'm, I'm generalizing here, so you know, it's not an absolute statement, but is when we see someone else being hurt, we really, really hate that. And I think that's what you're seeing right now in this kind of culmination of events the same way back then, as people started taking that look at slavery and saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, you're hurting these people. This is not right. The same way in the civil rights movement, when you saw those hoses turned on kids or African-American students or dogs unleashed on them, people go, you know what, that's wrong. We have a really great sense for that as Americans. And, and I'm proud to be an American on that level. 
do we also have a sense of appreciation of the history? Because when we get to these moments, the kind of inflection point that we're in now, the kind of moments that you're talking about, they're really not the beginning of something. In a way, they're the end of something that's been going on, and finally people feel the need to react. Oh, I think that's very much right. We, we, you know, history, Mark Twain has always attributed this quote. Uh, he actually never right. said it, but it's still a wonderful <laughs> quote. He said, you know, history doesn't repeat itself, but it sure does rhyme. Um, and and he, there's no proof he ever said it, but man, I'm not taking it away from him. It's too good. And I don't think we for one second stop and go, let's think of our history and what we learned here. We do not do that. We do not do that as a culture. What we do is we react to whatever's in front of us in that moment and we decide whether we like it or not. And I think as anyone who's been watching um, this country for the past three and a half years, uh, listen, I think it's proof that, that the Civil War never ended. That the end of slavery, you know, you, you certainly had the Emancipation Proclamation, you, you certainly had Juneteenth, but that venomous thing within us that fight that was going on, that never ended. And, and I think, you know, it's no coincidence that after the first black president, that ugly underbelly came out again. Um, I mean, to watch, you know, listen, I'm talking to you on the Monday after a noose is found in a NASCAR race and people are wearing Confederate flags around. And the most shocking thing amidst all of this to some people is that all these NASCAR drivers, I don't know if you saw the video they just released today where they're walking with the, the black NASCAR driver in the track in unity, right? This is in this year in Alabama and they're walking in unity to stand together against racism um, that they're seeing in their own fans. It's an incredible moment. It's an incredible, beautiful moment um, to watch all these diehard NASCAR drivers take a stand and say, we're not, we're not doing that despite how many whether it's viewers we lose or whatever it might be, they've had enough. It's enough. And, and it's not because they look back and go, well, you know, in the civil rights movement, I was thinking about them. And I was thinking, about... no, it just doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem fair. And that's when these big shifts happen, whether it was the sixties in the civil rights movement, whether it was 1865 in the civil war, um, you know, pick your moment, but it's because Americans stand and look around and take a breath and go, we've had enough. Brad Meltzer. His book is The Lincoln Conspiracy, The Secret Plot to Kill America's 16th President and Why It Failed. Brad, it has been a pleasure. I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thanks so much for the thoughtful conversation. Thank you.